I'm glad you found your way to the Your Vet Wants You to Know podcast for more information about how to care for your pet. The show is designed to be educational and entertaining, but not to give a specific diagnosis or treatment for your animal. That job belongs to your veterinarian who knows your pet and wants to talk to you about what's going on with them. I'm here to be a resource only. Thanks and enjoy the show. As a curious pet owner, have you ever taken to the internet for more information? Maybe you want to know why your pet is itchy and what you can do about it. Maybe you're frustrated about the ear infections. Maybe you're looking for ways to make veterinary care more affordable. Instead of wading through a sea of information that may not be reliable and in some cases may be harmful, here is what your vet wants you to know. I'm Dr. Brittany Lancelotti, board certified veterinary dermatology specialist. Join me to get the information you're looking for to care for your pet. If you're curious about your pet, then your vet wants you to know. Welcome everyone to today's episode of Your Vet Wants You to Know. Last week, we were joined by Dr. Christine Clippin, who shared with us a wealth of information about toxins that you might find around your house that could injure your dog. And today, we're going to be continuing the second of the two-part series in that discussion. So sit back and enjoy. I want to transition now a little bit to things that are dangerous. So our toxin number six is mouse and rat poison or rat bait. Tell us a little bit about what these are and why they might be toxic. So we do see a lot of mouse and rat bait ingestion because again, one of the things that a lot of pet owners may not realize is that by putting this mouse bait out, they're under a false sense of security that your pet will not eat it. And I think that's kind of a little bit of a dangerous sort of thought process because if it's good enough for a mouse or a rat to eat, there is going to be concern that your pet may eat it as well. And we see ingestions a little bit more commonly, of course, in dogs. There are three different types of rat baits that we will typically see. And the major categories that we see are cholecalciferol. So these are a vitamin D3 derivative type of baits. We see bromethylin type baits. And then we have a class of what we consider anticoagulant um, rodenticides or anticoagulant rat baits. The challenge with these is that all of these different types of rat bait are pretty similar in color and pretty similar in consistency. And so what will sometimes happen is you'll have a pet that comes to the hospital and the owner will say they got into a rat bait. When describing it, you know, that blue green kind of a fluorescent sort of color that doesn't help me determine what the active ingredient is. And the way that we treat them are all very, very different because they all act very differently in the body. Just so our listeners know, we have a couple of really good episodes um, coming up on two of the types of rat baits. So cholecalciferol, we'll be talking about in detail with a veterinarian whose pets actually did ingest this and had quite an ordeal. And then the anticoagulant rodenticide warfarin, which causes significant bleeding. So Dr. Clippin, tell us briefly about the different types of rat baits that there are. So cholecalciferol, 
this will raise the level of calcium and phosphorus um, in the dog system. And that ends up causing what we consider soft tissue mineralization or potentially kidney failure, and especially if not treated properly and promptly. The second group that we see is something called bromethylin. And bromethylin has been touted as maybe one of the more safer type of rat baits. And the reasoning for it is that animals do have to eat a larger amount of that rat bait. But the downside from a veterinarian's perspective is that it causes swelling of the brain. And so unfortunately, with bromethylin ingestions, if you have a pet that develops clinical signs, it can be a little bit more challenging to treat and the prognosis is pretty significantly affected. And then the last group is the anticoagulant. And the anticoagulant rat baits will prevent the dog's blood from clotting. And so that's what causes severe and potentially uncontrolled bleeding. And with that particular one, we will start to see signs again, within about 48 to 72 hours after ingestion. And I know you had mentioned before, they all have this beautiful blue-green color to them. What do you think is important for pet owners to do if they notice their animal eating something that has that blue-green color? What would be most helpful to you as an emergency veterinarian? I think that there's a couple of things that you can do. If you put out the rat bait yourself, if you still have the original packaging, I think that that gives me a lot of information. Even if it's a torn up piece of packaging, I can still typically find it while searching on the internet. So that's usually the first thing. If you have the original packaging, great, bring it in so I can take a peek at it. The other thing that I've had to rely upon is your shopping history on Amazon. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people will throw away that original packaging, but when we question where they bought it, most of us still have it listed in our Amazon orders. And so I have had people go through their Amazon orders to get me the name of it. And then the last thing is, let's say you didn't put out the product yourself. Let's say you contracted either a company to put the product out, or it's one of those many bait stations that we will typically see around the city. And with any of those contractors or even those bait stations as part of putting out poison, they have to be able to record and keep track of those ingredients that they're putting out. And so sometimes there are phone numbers that can be called on the bottom of those bait stations. And so you can touch base with the company that put it out. And then the other thing that is really helpful is a lot of the bait stations will have an EPA registration number. And you may have to look for it, but we can actually contact ASPCA Poison Control and they can look up those EPA registration numbers to get that information. So there are definitely some things that can be done to try to narrow down the type of toxin and so therefore be able to target therapy a little bit better. That's excellent. Yeah, really helpful information as far as figuring out exactly what the animal ate and how you can best help it. What about um, our toxin number seven here? We have antidepressant medications. I know that's something that people have very commonly in their home. Why are antidepressants toxic and what should pet owners know about this? 
Antidepressants, most of the ones that we see in the emergency room are usually part of a class of medication called selective serotonin reuptake uh, inhibitors, or also known as SSRIs. And we sometimes will use similar products in even our veterinary patients with behavioral issues. So it is a medication that a lot of us are familiar with. But what can happen is with accidental poisonings or ingestion, we will start to see things like sedation, even central nervous system stimulation. So these patients will act jittery. They may have dilated pupils. They may be panting. They may have an elevated heart rate, not eating lethargy. Again, because of the fact that we always have pets at our feet in our households, dropping a pill or two happens, and it happens quite frequently. But again, those medications are more formulated for a human size and maybe not necessarily a dog or a cat size. If an animal does happen to ingest these antidepressants, what might the pet owner see or what are some of the things that the dog might experience? So we can see, again, sedation or even overstimulation, vomiting, tremors, in real severe ingestions, potentially seizures, elevated body temperature, so they may feel hot to people, dilated pupils. Um, A lot of these pets, if they've gotten into something, they act like something is not right. And so I feel as though most pets are experiencing signs that owners will pick up on. On the opposite end of that, we're moving on to toxin number eight. We have the stimulant medications, so things for ADD and ADHD. Why should pet owners be concerned about these medications? Most of the ADHD medications are stimulants. Um, And so when a dog ingests a stimulant, you can start to, again, see an increase in activity. So we may see pacing, walking in circles. These pets can have an elevated heart rate. They may feel warm again. And the key thing with the ADHD medications and some of the antidepressants that we talked a little bit about is that they can come in different formulations. They can come in rapid release formulations, and then they can also come in extended release formulations. And so, you know, that really depends upon when we will start to see signs. With the rapid release, we may start to see signs within 15 minutes to two hours after ingestion. But with the extended release, because of the coding, because of the way that they make those medications, it may be several hours that we'll see those signs. And the concern with the extended release formulations those clinical signs can last upwards of 48 to 72 hours. Again, you know, even if you're like, ah, maybe I'll just wait and see, it is actually better to consult with either one of the pet hotlines, the the ASPCA or pet poison hotline, or reaching out to your veterinarian because they all work very differently within the body. Perfect. And having a good information about what medications are in your home and exactly what it is that the animal might have gotten into is going to be helpful for the veterinarian as well. What about medications that other pets in the household uh, have? What concerns might there be with you know one pet eating the other pet's medication? There are lots and lots of different pet-specific medication companies that are out there. And we as veterinarians rely upon a lot of these newer companies that are out there to make 
giving medications to our dogs and cats much easier. And so we will rely upon different flavorings, different um, formulations to make that struggle of giving pills and liquids to pets a lot less painful for the pet owner. Mm -hmm. But what can sometimes happen is that we make these medications so appetizing and so um, easy to eat that the other pets in the household may inadvertently get into those medications. And so accidental ingestions can occur all of the time. There are lots of ones that are out there, things like thyroid medications. There are cardiac or heart medications. There's even seizure medications um, that dogs and cats will inadvertently eat. And I think that because there's so many different types that are out there, it's hard to specifically point out what clinical signs that an owner may notice. But because we deal with these inadvertent ingestions all of the time and have probably gotten five or six calls about it previously, we may be able to give you information about, is this something that needs to be seen or is it something that you need to come in on an emergency basis? Yeah. So knowing what medications you have for all of your pets in the household and keeping those medications out of reach from the other pets is really helpful. Now, toxin number 10, or this group of toxins, I'm very excited to talk about because this is something that we deal with in our house as well. So toxin number 10 is gardening supplies, things like bone meal, fertilizer, and pesticides. Why are these things toxic and what should pet owners know about them? It's starting to warm up here on the East Coast. And so lots and lots of people are going out and starting to work on their gardens. We can see animals accidentally get into things um, while we're out gardening or getting into the shed or getting into the garage because a lot of us maybe don't necessarily think about putting them up and out of reach. We don't think that children will get into them, but some of these products are stinky and if they're stinky and yucky, it might be something that a dog would want to eat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Russell, the uh, Your Vet Wants You to Know mascot is notorious for trying to get into different types of fertilizers when we're out working in the garden. He is as disgusting as he is scruffy. So I certainly can sympathize with trying to keep pets out of these materials. Yes. A number of years ago, well before I became a veterinarian, when I was a kid, one of my dogs got into a significant amount of bone meal. Um, God knows how much the dog ate. You know, again, we didn't think anything of it until he developed really severe vomiting and bloody diarrhea. And everyone who has experienced bloody diarrhea in a dog knows how alarming that it can be. Mm -hmm. And I remember taking my dog to the emergency room that weekend. I felt miserable for him because of the fact that I'm sure it caused a real significant tummy upset. So I'm sure he was regretting his decision at that moment. Yeah, absolutely. What about compost piles? Because I know a lot of people will have their own compost piles. We certainly do to try and minimize the amount of waste, but also to have some really good fertilizer for our garden. Tell us a little bit about the danger with those. With compost piles, it depends upon what you are putting um, out in the compost pile as well. Again, we've already talked a little bit about grapes and raisins and some of those other products dogs can inadvertently eat. 
The other major concern with compost piles is as that plant material starts to break down into those nutrients that we want to put on our flowers and put on our gardens, they can also start to develop mold and spores. And so something we consider tremorgenic mycotoxins and these types of molds can develop significant full body tremors. I've seen dogs come in because they're having such full body tremors that they can't walk, that they almost look like they're having seizures and their body temperatures can go up very high to the point where they mimic a dog with heat stroke. And so really trying to limit the access of a dog to those areas. So by using fencing or using one of those controlled composters that come in a bin mm -hmm. so that there, there is no chance that a dog or an animal could get into it is key. And what about that really fancy mulch? It almost seems like chocolate mulch. I know some people have used that. Do you have concerns about the cocoa bean mulch? We do. It is beautiful and it smells delicious because it really does smell like chocolate. And again, if it's something that smells good, this is something that a dog might inadvertently ingest. And with the cocoa bean mulches, because they still will contain those active ingredients that we see in chocolate ingestions, dogs that get into this type of mulch may actually exhibit signs very similar to if they had eaten dark chocolate. Perfect. So we've gone through our top 10 household dog toxins, and hopefully people are a little bit more aware of things that might cause issues with their animals. What are some of the big takeaway points you'd like pet owners to remember? With any sort of ingestion, I would say the first thing to do is to take stock. And what I mean by taking stock is assessing the situation. It is frightening when you look down, you go, oh my gosh, I dropped something and a pet has lapped it up. But taking stock in what is happening around you and gathering that information before you reach out to a veterinary professional. Some people are very confident in whether or not an animal has eaten something. Um, you know, if they dropped one pill, they know for a fact that their pet only ingested the one pill. But what happens if you come home and you find that your pet has chewed on a medication bottle? And so a couple of tricks with that is to look at when the prescription was last filled. Part of the things that are on the bottles are the number of pills that are in that particular bottle. And so if you know that you filled it two weeks ago and you take one pill every single day, then there should be potentially 14 less than what is written on that particular bottle. And that sort of worst case scenario helps veterinary professionals be able to triage and be able to know whether or not that ingestion could potentially be something serious. And how about inducing vomiting at home? Do you have any, you know, recommendations as far as whether or not that's something that you would encourage pet owners to do? So I actually don't like to induce vomiting at home without the input of a veterinary professional. And the reason behind that is that a lot of substances can actually cause more harm with attempting to induce vomiting. So if they get into cleaning products, if they get into sharp objects or something like that, yes, it may seem like getting it out of their system might be the best thing, but you can actually do more harm by having an animal vomit rather than taking other recommendations. 
And then the last reason why I am very, very nervous about owners inducing vomiting at home is that if there's an underlying medical condition, so something like heart disease, the brachiocephalic breeds, and so these are our smushed face dogs, our pugs, our French bulldogs, our English bulldogs, their confirmation puts them at greater risk for aspiration, meaning that they are not able to protect their airways as well if they were to vomit and have it go down the wrong tube. And so having them vomit in a hospital setting so that they can be monitored by veterinary professionals may be what's recommended. Perfect. Any common sense tips that you would give for owners to protect their pets so that they don't find themselves in a situation where the dog has to go to the emergency room because of something it's eaten? So I always tell people, use the same common sense as you would with baby proofing, um, but for your pets. And so all medications should be kept in areas of the house that not only children can't get into, but curious pets as well. I think that those pill sorters are great, especially if you have a pet that has lots and lots of medications, but why not put that pill finder inside of a Ziploc bag or put it inside of a Tupperware that has the ability to snap down those sides and again, up away from dogs that could inadvertently knock them down. So putting them up into a cupboard, putting them up on top of the refrigerator so that they can't get to them is definitely recommended. That's great. So we'll have lots of resources in the show notes for today because we went through a lot of things and especially the link to the ASPCA poison control hotline as well as the phone numbers there. So people can just plug that number right into your phone so that you have it. Um, You know, a lot of family veterinarians are comfortable managing pets who have ingested something toxic, oftentimes with the help of those poison control hotlines and the toxicologists that are there. But the link to find a critical care veterinarian near you will also be posted on the website if you'd like to consult with a specialist. If your pet has ingested something that they weren't supposed to, or maybe you went through a a toxicity scare and you want to share your story with pet owners, then I would encourage you to join the Facebook group. Tell us about the time that your dog ate something and what you went through. Tell us about some other toxins that you think would be important for other pet owners to know about as well. Dr. Clippen, I always end the episodes with a segment called Scratching the Itch. And this is a segment that will highlight something, whether it's a human interest story, a product or a website that either provides relief or just makes you feel good. Hence, Scratching the Itch. Do you have something that scratches the itch for our listeners today? So I know I mentioned very early um, on in the presentation that I practice on the East Coast. And we are coming up on a time of the year that if you aren't from the East Coast, you're not familiar with. And it is something called the cicadas that are coming. And for those of you that don't know what a cicada is, hopefully we can provide a picture of it Mm -hmm. um, in this episode. But they're these flying insects that are about two and a half to sometimes three inches in length. At night, you can hear them and it sounds wonderful when you go down south. But the interesting part is that every 17 years, they go through this life cycle where they come out of the ground in swarms. And it is insanity uh-huh. with, with these bugs that are flying around everywhere. Dogs love it. 
because they eat them <laughs> by the bucket holes. <laughs> and thankfully, they're not toxic. They cause some vomiting if you eat a bunch of them, but they're actually pretty beneficial to the environment. But if you are visiting the East Coast during this every 17-year <laughs> cycle, it can be very disarming. It's um, traumatic. This is like so I'm, traumatic. I grew up on the East Coast and I still have oh, nightmares about yes. these monsters just everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And it's funny because I dealt with them as a child and I still to this day have terrible memories of these flying insects. <laughs> and I moved away for veterinary school. And so I missed the last swarm, but this summer they're coming. And so um, um, a mom in my community, because again, she grew up with the same fears that you and I have of these terrible bugs, wrote this wonderful story for children that's called Cecily the Cicada. And it's actually a very, very heartwarming story. It goes through the life cycle um, of the cicada and why they are so beneficial to the environment to help with our young children who may soon be experiencing these things. And I just thought it was a really neat, very local resource for at least people on the East Coast. And then for those of you who have never experienced a cicada swarm, teaching children about these bugs that... Oh, I, I am not looking forward to this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm looking at Cecily Cicada here. And this beautiful illustration is much more endearing and charming than the actual <laughs> insects are. <laughs> yes. That's very cute. Thank you very much for that scratching the itch. That's absolutely adorable. And good luck with the cicadas this summer. <laughs> Godspeed. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Dr. Clippin, thank you so much for coming on and sharing um, all of this wonderful, uh, jam-packed episode of information on household dog toxins. I'm really looking forward to what you've got as far as household cat toxins next week. I think it's going to be a really helpful episode as well. And I just so value your time and your expertise. Thank you so much. Thank you always. And for everyone else, I look forward to your next visit with your vet wants you to know. <laughs> <laughs>